0: Welcome to this message from Eastwood Baptist Church. One church with two locations in Bowling Green and Alberton, Kentucky. To learn more, visit eastwoodbc.org. Now, may the Lord bless you in the hearing of His Holy Word. No, no, it had to be. It had to be January. Um, I called Leviticus the tar pits of Bible reading plans. Basically, you, you, know, you, you begin the first of the year, and I'm going to read the Bible through, and you're going great through the narrative passages, then you get to Leviticus, and it's like, boom, you go in, but you never come out like all those animals did back in the day when they went into tar pits, okay? But um, I have thoroughly enjoyed this study, and uh, the feedback that I've gotten um, from folks is that they have as well, because again, we're not just looking at Leviticus for Leviticus's sake, all right? Um, we are new covenant Christians. All right, we are not under the old covenant, which Leviticus is, um, which Leviticus is overseeing and regulating. We are new covenant Christians, and so we're looking at Leviticus in light of. The new covenant. So we're calling this series to pick it back up here. um, Just just a couple more messages. uh, Three messages left in this one. We're calling it the code, right? It's the it's the Levitical code. So the code, and then the subtitle for this series is Leviticus in light of the new covenant. All right, Leviticus in light of the new covenant. Now again, like I said, that subtitle is really important because we are looking at it through the eyes of the new covenant, through the eyes of the ministry of Jesus Christ. All right. Now, if you're new here on Wednesday nights, we're so thankful that you're here. Just know that Wednesday nights is a bit different from Sunday mornings in this regard, okay? Um, This is not me just preaching, all right? It's maybe a bit more teaching, um, but also get ready because it's also dialogical, okay? I, I, I may throw out a question, uh, and I expect you to answer. Otherwise, it's going to be really awkward, okay? It'll be like, you know, I need Jesse with the little thing back there like that plays some cricket noise or something. You know, crickets like chirp, chirp, you know, when nobody answers. And so um, not only will I ask questions, but I'll also throw out a passage and say, hey, who would read this for us? And the only thing I ask you to do is if that's you is to read loudly and to read proudly, all right? If you come across a word that you have no idea you need a PhD to pronounce, that's okay. Uh, listen, that happens to me all the time, all right? And what do you do? You fake it, all right? You just say it however it looks to you, all right? And we don't know any better for the most part, all right? I had a, one of my deacons at my last church, man, I loved him. That dude, he was a servant. Uh, he was a man of God, loved serving with him, and... Um, you know, we, I remember we were in a study one time, and you've got that guy in the, that king in the Old Testament called Artaxerxes, all right? He would just say, Artaxerxes, and go on. You know, it's all good. You know, just, you know, he botched it, but that's okay, right? We all botch it. In fact, uh, that's probably not how he said it either. So, anyway, just uh, want to just throw it out there, just give you a heads up. If I ask for a question or ask you to read, don't be, uh, don't, don't be surprised, all right? We love that. We love the conversation. So, Um, tonight specifically as we think about Leviticus in light of Jesus Christ we're going to specifically be looking at the jubilee all right the jubilee we're going to begin to understand how that relates to us in Christ Jesus now listen that's a really big topic all right so how do you eat an elephant you eat an elephant a bite at a time and so this one's going to be a two bite a two biter okay uh, it's kind of like my son, Zachariah. He can finish a Big Mac in two bites, all right? So uh, we're going to do a two-biter here. Um, this week, we're going to really focus in on the Jubilee itself. We want to understand the Jubilee and how it played out in the life of Israel, all right? And what, what are the theological implications of the Jubilee, the themes that are coming out of that for us today that are relevant to us, all right? And then next week, we're going to come back and we'll... we'll, we'll we won't even really be in Leviticus. I mean, Leviticus will be the, the context, I, su- uh, I suppose, thinking about the Jubilee. All right, but next we're going to come back and we're going to connect the Jubilee to Jesus. All right, connect the Jubilee to Jesus. And uh, I just want to say when I, you know, some years ago now, you know, when I first, um, when I first learned uh, how Jesus is connected to the Jubilee, it made me marvel at the depth of the riches, and the wisdom, and the knowledge of our God. So I hope that it does the same thing for you, all right? So there's your teaser for next week, all right? We hope that this week is good, but next week, we pray, will be amazing if you love Jesus, all right? So... Um, so we're going to advance in our teaching by, uh, by, by question and answer tonight, all right? And so we're going to do that. And, uh, in other words, we're going to ask questions, and we're going to answer them. I'm going to answer them, and we'll, we'll, we'll go in that way. So let me pray for us, and we'll dive in tonight, all right? Lord God, we thank you for the privilege to open your word. And God, we don't want to do this without your Holy Spirit. And so, Father, right now, we invite your Holy Spirit to come. It's our, you're already here, Holy Spirit, but we ask that you would help us to understand Uh, Help us to uh, not only understand but then to uh, love what we hear and then to apply rightly what we hear in our life because this is relevant to us right here uh, in 2020. Father, we thank you for your goodness and mercy. We thank you for Christ. Father, I do want to say if there's any man, woman, boy, or girl who's here tonight who's never turned and trusted Christ as their Savior, God, I ask that tonight would be the night. Even on Wednesday night, Father, you save people even on Wednesday night. We pray that tonight would be the night that they would see their sin, see the Savior crucified for their sin, and rising again from the grave with victory over sin. And today would be the day that they would be saved by trusting in Christ. And so, Father, just move in our midst. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. All right, so the first question I want to answer tonight um, is, is just simply, what is the jubilee? All right, what is... The jubilee. Now, the word, of itself, the word itself is kind of misleading, all right? Because think about this. When, when, when you hear the word jubilee, what English word do you think of? Besides jubilee. Celebration, Celebration? yeah. But it kind of sounds like what? Jubilation. Jubilation, right? Or jubilant, yeah. It depending on if you, want, uh, if you want the noun or if you want the adjective, right? So it kind of sounds like that, but but... Especially when you think about what we associate in our minds with the jubilee itself in the Bible. Like, we we, we associate things with really good things, exciting things. But all the experts tell us that that's not actually the case, that it's actually a false cognate. They tell us that the word jubilee and the word jubilant or the word um, uh, uh, jubilation, they're actually not related. And I'm just going to be honest with you, I actually find that hard to believe. Okay? Uh, But that's what the scholars get paid the big bucks for, right? So, the English word it actually has its root in the Hebrew word for ram, all right? The, one, of the, one of the Hebrew words for ram actually is ram, uh, I do believe, uh, but nevertheless, uh, the word, uh, another word for a mature ram uh, is a hyobil, hyobil, all right? Now, that comes into French as jubilee, all right? And then into English as jubilee, all right? So you might be thinking, what in the world does a ram's horn have to do with the Jubilee? Well, look here in the text with me, Leviticus 25, verse 9 and 10. Leviticus 25, verse 9 and 10. And you have your copy of of, of the Word of God? But then also, um, Geraldine back here in the back is is really quick on the trigger, and she'll try to bring it up as we say it. But always, uh, if you've got your copy of God's Word, that's good too. So would somebody read for us Leviticus 25, verse 9 and 10? Now, you saw the word there where it says, on that 10th day of the seventh month, you shall sound the loud what? The loud trumpet. Now, the, he- the Hebrew word there is actually the word shofar, all right? But what is a shofar? A shofar is a, a trumpet that is hollowed out to make, um, uh, it's a horn that's hollowed out to make a trumpet, and usually it was a ram's horn, kind of twisty, kind of cool. Maybe you've been in a church before that uses, particularly maybe on Pentecost, a shofar to, 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 to blow and to make that sound, okay? So, um, so that, that, you see that connection there? So the word jubilee is called jubilee. The jubilee is called jubilee because it was the horn of a hyobal, or a more European pronunciation, a jubil. okay? Typically, when you take Hebrew, and it's coming into English. It kind of passes through Europe, and every word in in Hebrew that begins with a Y, with a yod, um, gets, gets, gets transliterated into a J. All right, just like when we think about Yahweh, we hear Yahweh in Hebrew. Well, it comes through Europe and it becomes Jehovah. All right, uh, with that J there. All right, so, so anyway, just so you get, that's how Jubilee gets from Yobil. All right. So now that we understand the word itself, what about the concept? All right, the concept. Look at Leviticus 25.10. Here's where it's defined. We just read this a moment ago, but I want to read it again so that we can hear the definition of what the, 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 the idea, the concept of the Jubilee is. Who'd read it for us again? Verse 10 only. The jubilee, did you notice that there? It's a year of liberty. Somebody's going to get set free. Something's going to get set free. So again, while the word jubilee apparently has no uh, connection to the word jubilant, (laughs) the jubilee was something certainly to be jubilant about, right? Expressing joy and happiness and all those things, okay? Triumph. So essentially when you think about the jubilee, the jubilee was a process of the God-ordained economic system of Israel, all right? It's primarily an economic uh, system, a a regulation of that. It it had two primary points of concern, people and property, all right? People and property, or, or you may say it this way, family and land inheritance. So people and property is what this is regulating here, okay? People and property. So in terms of family, as we think about this, It's important to understand that Israel was socially organized by tribes. We're familiar with that, right? The tribes, the 12 tribes of Israel. All right, but it was also organized then underneath that by clans. And then within the clans, you had households or or families. So there were sort of three levels. You see this exemplified in Gideon's response there in Judges 6.15 when God called him to save Israel from Midian, here's what he said, Judges 6.15. He said to the Lord, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh. That's his tribe. And I am the least in my father's house. So you see all three of them right there? He said that his clan was the weakest in the tribe. And in the tribe, there were households or uh, in the... In the, in the clan, uh, there were households, and he claimed to be the weakest in his household even, all right? So he's basically saying, I'm, I'm the weakest of the weak. God, why are you coming to me, all right? But you can see all three levels there, tribe, clan, household. So this is really important for us to kind of get in our brains here as we come into understanding the Jubilee, all right? It was instituted by God to protect these kinship structures. And if you'll remember, these kinship structures were connected to the land, right? Remember when when Israel took control of the land after Joshua conquered it? How did they divide it up? They divided it up by kinship units, right? The land was divided into territories, and each territory was allotted to a tribe. And then according to their clans... And within the clans, each household had its portion or heritage. So each family was given land by God within that structure. So again, tribe, clan, household. Tribes were given a region. It's kind of like this, okay? Um, You've got the United States of America. And then within the United States of America, you've got a portion called Kentucky. And then within Kentucky, you've got a portion called Warren County. And then within Warren County, you've got Ben's house, right? And so it kind of worked like that, all right, just kind of a, as an illustration, okay? And so God, that, that, that land allotment was set going forward, all right? It was set, it was given to him. it was a gift from them to God. But here's the key part we've got to understand with this, is that God communicated that they actually didn't own the land. He still did. God retained ownership. In a sense, he was he was leasing it to them, which meant that they could not sell it outright. All right. They were simply look at Leviticus 25, 23. Leviticus 25, 23. Who would read that one for us? The land must not be sold permanently, because the land is mine. There you go. So a family, they could not sell the land. Essentially, what they could do, though, because listen, I mean, real life happens, right? We've all been there before. (laughs) You know, either a deal goes bad, or we make a bad choice, or or whatever else, or an emergency happens, and we need money. You know, I mean, it's the same way back in those days as well. So they couldn't sell their land, but here's what they could do: they could basically sublease the land to somebody else. All right, God owned it. They were the leasee, so to speak, and then they could take that and sub-lease it. I don't know if you've ever done that with an apartment. I just saw the other day on Facebook, somebody connected to our church even, I think, maybe had a, had a person that they, were, that they had a lease on an apartment, but they decided they didn't want to stay in the apartment this semester, so they sub, they're sub-leasing it to somebody else. So you sort of see how that works. So they weren't really selling the land, all right? Rather, when they sold the land... They were just selling the use of the land. Look at verse 16 with me. Leviticus 25, 16. If the years are many, you shall increase the price. And that's talking about the years until the Jubilee. And if the years are few, you shall reduce the price. For it is the number of the crops that he's selling to you. You see what I'm saying there? Just like down the road from me, there's a farmer who is leasing a field all right, who um, is raising, uh, he's raising corn on it. It's not his property. He's leasing it, all right? Um, And so that's sort of how that works. he's, He's not, he doesn't own the land. He's just raising crops on it, all right? So actually what he's saying here, what the Bible's saying is you're not really, you're not really selling the land, you're selling the crops. You're selling the use of the land, all right? And the Jubilee, it regulated all of this, all right? And when the Jubilee came, the land returned to the original family. And so, you ever ever read the Old Testament in particular? And you think, my goodness, man, they've got every person listed. I mean, the family trees are so precise, they're so long, they're so in-depth. You ever wonder, why in the world did they do that? Well, one of the reasons is to preserve the lineage of Jesus, right? But the other reason is they had to keep up with whose land it originally was. They had to keep very detailed family trees so that they would know how all of this worked, all right? So that is what the Jubilee is, okay? So let's go to the next question then tonight. And it's this question is, is wh- when was the Jubilee supposed to happen? Because this sounds like pretty good stuff, right? I mean, you're going to be set free. Your land's going to be set free. You're going to be set free if you're, if you're a captive, or if your land was captive. So when is this supposed to happen? Well, before we understand the Jubilee and when it was supposed to happen, we have to understand the concept of Sabbath. Now, you guys, if you've been around the Bible very long at all, you understand Sabbath, right? The Sabbath happens how often? Every week, right? Every week. And which day of the week is it? Yeah, the last one, right? The last day of the week. And that's based on Genesis 1 and 2 where God created the earth in six days, and on the last day, the seventh day of the week, he rested, he had a Sabbath. And so Jewish people, every week, they celebrated the Sabbath, they observed the Sabbath, they worked for six days, and then they rested on the Sabbath. Okay, But here in Leviticus, it wasn't only the people who were supposed to observe a Sabbath, so was the land. So was the land. So let's look here at Leviticus 25. Verses 1 through 5, Leviticus 25, verses 1 through 5. Who would read that for us? so just like on the weekly basis people were supposed to work 6 days and rest one on the on the on the land for land it was supposed to be worked 6 years and then rest one it was to have a sabbath year and so here's my question to you why in the world would god do that what do you guys think any agriculturalists here that's right so there's that very Practical aspect of it, right? If you've if you've worked a land, if you've worked a place for very long, you know that that one crop or crops just in general, over time they deplete the nutrients of the soil. And of course, in our day and age, we've got the ability to sort of add back in those nutrients with fertilizer and manure and all those things. But they didn't. They may have had manure in those days, but they didn't have all these other things. And so, this was a way to keep the soil fruitful. Okay, but I think there's more to it than that. I think there's more to it than that because. Um, you know, he could have had it where they just kind of rotated, right? I mean, he could have said, rotate those crops. You know, I mean, that's what we do, isn't it? We don't plant the same thing in the same field every year. God could have put together a plan of rotation. But he didn't do that. He went further. He said, you can't farm any of it. And so I think not only was it a benefit to the soil, but spiritually, I think it was a recurring testimony to God's provision. I'm going to provide for you. Listen, Listen, son, listen, daughter, listen, people, I'm going to give you what you need. You can rest. Just like the Sabbath itself was an act of faith, this here was a recurring testimony to God's provision and a recurring test of faith. Look at verse 6 and 7 here in Leviticus 25. It says, the Sabbath of the land shall provide food for you... For yourself and for your male and female slaves and for your hired worker and the sojourner who lives with you. And for your cattle and for the wild animals that are in the land. All its yield shall be for food. So they couldn't couldn't, uh, cultivate the land. They couldn't plant the land. They couldn't harvest the land like they normally would. But whatever the land produced on its own, they could eat. And God says it's going to be enough. That sixth year is going to be extra. And in that seventh year, what is produced there in that time shall be food for you, particularly for the wild animals and the cattle, I suppose, because the people themselves weren't going to eat of what the land produced. It was for the wild animals and the cattle and all those things. So that's the cycle of a Sabbath year. So we know the Sabbath week. Then we think about the Sabbath year. Now we jump into the the Jubilee, all right? The Jubilee. was based on the Sabbath year cycle, all right? It was the year after the seventh Sabbath year. So how many years in a Sabbath cycle? Seven, all right? And the Jubilee comes after seven seven seven-year cycles. So seven times seven years is how much? 49 years, all right? And the next year was the Jubilee. So the Jubilee was to happen every 50 years. Every 50 years. Look at uh, verse 8 there in Leviticus 25, verse 8. You shall count seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the time of the seven weeks of years shall be 49 years. Verse 9. Then you shall sound a loud trumpet on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the day of the atonement you shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land. And you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all of its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you when each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan. Now notice, and this is one of the amazing things here. You talk about stretching somebody. Notice that agriculturally, the jubilee was just like the Sabbath year before it. Right. Look at verse 11 and 12. Now the 50th year shall be a jubilee for you. In it you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of itself, nor gather the grapes from the undressed vines. For it's a jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You may eat the produce of the field. So catch that. That's actually two Sabbath years in a row, right? The 49th year and then the 50th year. They weren't to farm the land there for two years. Now if you're a farmer who's dependent on your crops, How excited would you be to not be able to farm your crops for a whole year? (coughs) Right? (laughs) That does not sound fun to me. All right? How about two years, though? Oh, my goodness. Two years? You talk about stretching. Stretching. But, again, why did God do that? I think it was for the same reasons. For the same reasons. A benefit to the soil and a benefit to the recurring testimony of God's provision. A recurring test of faith. But, guys, God doesn't leave them without encouragement. Look at verse 18 through 22. Leviticus 25, 18 through 22. Who would read that one for us? This is a good one. I love this. Leviticus 25, verse 18 through 22. Yes. man God's God saying, listen, I've got you. You can trust me. I'm the Lord of the harvest. I'm the Lord of the harvest. God would not let them starve so that's a challenge isn't it to just think about that and just put yourself in their shoes for a moment would you be excited about that part (laughs) of the Jubilee it would be really hard but also think about this think about how it caused people to learn to live within their means and to live simply right couldn't we all do better if we did those things. So those are the first two questions. What was the Jubilee? And then secondly, when was the Jubilee supposed to happen? Every 50 years, all right? So how did the Jubilee then regulate property and people? Let's talk about property first, okay? Property, Leviticus 25, 13. Leviticus 25, 13 says, in the year of Jubilee, each of you shall return to his property. That's part of the liberty, right? Your property is set free so let's say again you needed money the only thing you had to sell was your land and you could sell that land actually remember you're subleasing it because God's the owner and you're the leaser you're subleasing it but how do you determine the price well basically what you would do you can look at verses 14 through 17 we're not gonna read all that but it basically goes this way you basically say how many years is it until the next jubilee now notice here, he says, though, look at verse look at verse, um, um, verse, 14 and verse 15. He says, if you make a sale to your neighbor or buy from your neighbor, you shall not wrong one another. You shall pay your neighbor according to the years after the Jubilee. He shall sell you according to the numbers of years for crops, all right? So essentially, you could sublease your land for however many years until the next Jubilee. That's sort of how that worked. That's how you would calculate. You could say how much, how much, how, 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 how many crops, or how many crops, how much of a harvest—that's the word I'm trying to say—does my land produce? And you take that and you multiply it by the number of years left until the next jubilee. And that's how you would determine a price. All right. So if it was 49 years, you would take the profit of your land and multiply that by that by 49 years. And that's how much money, basically, you could get from someone in the lease of that land, okay? If it was two years, you could only sublease it for two years. But does that make sense? All right? Because at the Jubilee, guys, it automatically reverted back to the, main, uh, to, to the man's clan, all right? Remember, tribe, clan, household. It reverted back to that man's clan, to the household who originally owned it. Now, here's the cool thing. You think, man, 49 years? I I, I could do it for 49 years? I don't want to do it that long. Well, the cool thing is, is that you could actually get it back before then. And here's how that happened. You could have that rich uncle. (laughs) Praise God for rich uncles. I wish I had one, all right? Uh, At least it liked me. No, just kidding. (laughs) You could get your rich uncle or your rich cousin to come and be a kinsman Redeemer. You've heard that word before? Which story in the Bible is that most uh, connected to? Ruth. That's right. Boaz redeemed Uh, Ruth, all right, or Naomi or whoever it was, however it worked. I guess it was Ruth. It was Ruth, yeah, and the mother-in-law was with them. Yeah, Naomi was with them. So, So in that sense, so so you get the idea that kinsman redeemer, he could come buy it back for you. He could say, no, 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 we're not going to let this go into somebody else. We've got to get this back for our clan, for our people. Or if the guy's finances got better, he could buy it back himself at any point. He only had to, and and what he had to pay back at that moment was, let's say that he subleased it for 49 years and he has 10 years left. His, His finances have finally turned around. He has 10 years left before the jubilee, he would just have to say, how he would just have to pay for the 10 years back, right? Because he's already, he's, the guy's already had it for the other 39, all right? So that's sort of how that worked. But here's what's really important, okay? Here's what's really important. Because in our day and age, we think of the Jubilee as sort of like a bankruptcy or as like a debt forgiveness. It's important to point out here that nobody lost money here. Nobody lost money. The Jubilee wasn't bankruptcy. It wasn't debt forgiveness. You know, again, we hear this all the time about student loan forgiveness and things like that, where they just take your debt and they say, canceled, done for. That's not what this was. Or You go to a bankruptcy court and you say, judge, I just can't pay it back. And they say, don't worry, you don't have to pay it back. Nobody here was actually borrowing money. They were leasing land. Does that make sense? They weren't really borrowing money. They were leasing land. Land And either the buyer got the use of the land until the Jubilee, or in essence, he had the opportunity to make his money back through the crops raised on the land, or a kinsman redeemer or the seller brought it back. So that's sort of what's happening there. That's one of the myths with the Jubilee is that it was like a debt cancellation. It was actually a leasing sort of thing, okay? So that's how it regulated property. But let's see how it regulated people here. And this actually is kind of strange um, because what we just read in Ephesians chapter 6 this past Sunday, it ties kind of into this. Of course, this isn't in the context of Rome. This is the context of Israel, all right? Several centuries before Rome come into power. But nevertheless, uh, it's sort of the same context here. So let's say that a man got into such financial straits that the leasing of his land couldn't raise enough funds. What could he do? Well, instead of just leasing his land, he could also lease himself and his family. He would sell himself and his land into servitude. Um, you know, you, you probably wouldn't use the word slavery here. He would sell himself into servitude. Now, remember, Israel was divided into tribes, clans, and households, all right? So if your brother or your kinsman became poor, the first stage was. Just help the guy. Just, just try to give him some money. You know, help him out. Loan him, some, loan him some money, but not on, and don't charge him interest or anything like that. You can see that in verses 35 through 38. 35 through 38. I'm not going to read it for time's sake. But sometimes that wasn't enough. And so he had to lease himself to a family in his clan. But notice he was not to be treated as a slave. I do want to read this one, Leviticus 25. 39 and 40. It says, if your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you, you shall not make him serve as a slave. He shall be with you as a hired worker and as a sojourner. He shall serve with you until the year of the Jubilee. So his whole family would serve this kinsman until the Jubilee, right? There, there was no redemption in this case. And at the end of the Jubilee, they would be set free and so would their land be set free if the head of the household if he died along the way the one that sold themselves into servitude the wife and children will remain in servitude until that year of jubilee but at the end of that jubilee the man got his land back or if he died his children wife got the land back or so on and so forth okay but what if there's nobody in his clan to lease himself and his land too. Well, then he could go outside of his clan, all right? He could lease himself, his family, and his land to somebody from another clan of a tribe or even a foreigner living in the land. Again, it says here, uh, just, just like with the property, a, a, a kinsman redeemer could come and buy him out of it or, or he could buy himself out of it. But if not, he would serve until the Jubilee. Look at verses 47. 49. Actually, let's jump to uh, 53, Leviticus 25, 53 through 55, all right? It says, he shall treat him as a, as, a, as a worker hired year by year. He shall not rule ruthlessly over him in your sight. And if he's not redeemed by these means, the, the, just before that talks talked about how he could be redeemed, then he and his children with him shall be released in the year of jubilee. For it is to me that the people of Israel are servants. They are servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Now, as I said on Sunday, this sort of language, <laughs> it doesn't sit well with our modern sensibilities, okay? Um, but again, this is one of the ways that God made for a person in, in the... In the theocracy remember this is a theocracy god is the ruler of this land he is the he's the king for poor people to be taken care of the only thing they had was themselves and they were able to do this and so but in that into that into that 50 year cycle whenever it was they would be set free all right again nobody's losing money on this because the guy who is who's been given to uh, he gets the opportunity to to basically have a hired person. He's working for that man, so his labor is paying for that. All right. So that's sort of the the basics uh, jubilee cycle and how it worked. I don't have any answers to any of your questions. All right. No, I don't know. <laughs> any, any questions, I really don't know if I have the answer. I don't think there's any biblical evidence. We ever place. That's that's absolutely true, and that's where we're going to go very next. So, question number four. Did Israel obey God? And the answer is, Danny, no. They, here's the deal. They didn't even obey the sabbatical year. Like, you think about, I mean, that one's easy, it seems like to me, right? I mean, work the land six years and let it set fallow. I mean, people right now all over the state getting paid by the government to let land set fallow, all right? I know it's a different economic system, but nevertheless. But they didn't even do the sabbatical year, much less the jubilee. They never really did the Jubilee. And here's the the key part. And let's skip down to Leviticus 26. Uh, Down around the 27th verse. I'm not going to read all this because, again, just for time's sake. But God basically says, if you don't obey me, I am going to bring an oppressor into your land discipline into your land. An outward, and a uh, 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 foreign force is going to come in. It's going to scatter you. It's going to lay waste your cities. It's going to desolate everything. Scatter you among the nations. I'll unsheath the sword after you and your land will be a desolation. Your cities will be a waste. Look at verse 34. Leviticus 26, verse 34. Then the land shall enjoy its Sabbaths as long as it lies desolate which you are in your enemy's land, or while you are in your enemy's land, then the land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. Verse 35, as long as it lies desolate, it shall have rest. The rest it did not have on your Sabbaths when you were dwelling in it. So God says, listen, I I know you people. Uh, You are sinners. And I just need to understand, if you don't obey me, here's the punishment. The land will have its Sabbaths, whether you choose to give it or not. Either you give it a Sabbath or I'm going to give it a Sabbath. And we skip ahead to Jeremiah 25, verses 8 through 11. And again, by this point, Israel has split into two kingdoms. When we get to Jeremiah, you've got the northern kingdom of Israel, also called Ephraim. Wiped off the face of the planet by the Assyrians. The southern kingdom of Judah is the one that remains. And here's what God says, Jeremiah 25, verses 8 through 11. Now you've heard about Nebuchadnezzar, you've heard about Babylon, okay? And here's what Jeremiah says. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you've not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all these surrounding nations. This is, this is God speaking through Jeremiah to the nation of Judah. I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will banish from them the voice of mirth, and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, and the voice of the bride. The grinding of the millstone and the light of the lamp. And then listen to this. This whole land shall become a ruin and waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. All right, so you hear that 70 years. Now, 2 Chronicles 36, Second Chronicles 36, Verse 20 and 21 gives us an understanding of why 70 years. Second Chronicles 36, 20 and 21. He took into exile, into Babylon, those who had escaped from the sword. And they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, listen to this, until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill the 70 years. So you skip ahead into prophecy. You're getting into the book of Daniel, all those things, and we'll get more into that next week. But basically, 490 years or so had passed from when God (laughs) said this to uh, where, where God said this in Leviticus to the time of Jeremiah's day. And so basically that was 70 Or something like that. My my numbers may be off. But basically, it was 70 Sabbaths, 70 Sabbath year cycles that they had not observed. So that's why God said 70 years for you. We're gonna, we're gonna, the, the land is gonna get 70 Sabbath years because you've skipped 70 Sabbath years. That's gonna bring us to next week, all right? But I wanna close on this. So, what theological themes? Question five are connected to the Jubilee for us to think about. right. Now again, next week we're going to connect this to Jesus, okay? All right, And, and and I hope it's I hope it I hope you have one of those aha moments like I had. It was really cool. But there's still truth here for us to learn about God and the things of God here. And so really quickly I just want to give you these, okay? Six quick themes, really quickly. First is Lordship. God owns it all. He owns it all. Every spot on planet earth he owns. The second thing to think about as a theme in this teaching, this institution of the Jubilee, is redemption. When you get down and out, God is able to redeem you. If you're a Christian here tonight, you are proof of that, right? You are proof of that. The third theme to think about here connected to the Jubilee is rest. God made us such that we need rest. And some of us really need to take this seriously, right? Because here's what happens. Either you rest or God makes you rest, right? We've all been there before where you just you can't go anymore. You burn out. You have a breakdown. you Whatever you want to call it. Your, your, your body shuts down. Whatever else. It's important. Rest is important. The fourth theological theme here with the Jubilee is obedience. If God commands us to do something, he expects us to do it. And you say, but God, it's hard. Yeah, the the Sabbath year cycle was hard. The Jubilee cycle was actually hard to do. It sounded great. You ever been there before? It sounds great, but it's hard to actually do. That was the situation they were in. But God gave it, calling them to obedience. A fifth theme I want you to think about is faith. Faith. God will do what he says he'll do. So guess what that means? We can do what he's asked us to do. Step out in faith and God will provide. And the final thing tonight, this final theological connection, I want to just bring up in your mind, connected to the Jubilee is the word hope. Hope. Now think about this for a moment. If you got into such a situation where you had to sell not only your land, But you, your wife, and your children, into servitude, you knew that a jubilee was coming. Even if you could never pay it back yourself, if you could never raise the resources yourself, and you didn't have a kinsman redeemer yourself, then there is the hope of the jubilee coming, where God does what you couldn't do. And that's where hope is found, right? God doing what we cannot do so here's my final prayer for us as we break out tonight may we rejoice in our great God who is a great liberator praise God that he set us free hi there this is Pastor Ben I have something really important to ask you, but first, I want to say thank you for taking the time to make this digital connection with us through our podcast. I hope the message you just listened to was a blessing, but an even greater blessing than this digital connection would be for you to connect with us in person this coming Sunday at one of Eastwood's two campuses where we get the joy of living life together in Jesus' name. And now for that really important question, which is the most important question you'll ever answer. Where do you stand before God? Now, based on what you've done, the straightforward answer is that you stand guilty and condemned before God. You are a sinner who completely deserves God's wrath forevermore in hell. And I deserve the same thing also. I mean, every person does. Guys, that's terrible news. And even worse is the fact that there's nothing you can do in and of yourself to change that. You need a Savior. But I have good news. God loved the world so much that he sent Jesus to be your savior. Jesus came and lived the perfect life that you cannot live. And he stood condemned on the cross, dying the death you deserve. And three days later, Jesus was raised from the dead to prove to everybody that he is indeed the savior of the world. And now Jesus longs to change your standing before God by making a trade with you. He desires to take what you've earned, which is the wrath of God in hell, and to give you in return what He has earned, which is the blessing of God in heaven. When this trade happens, instead of standing guilty and condemned before God, you will stand forgiven and righteous with the promise of everlasting life. So what must you do to have your standing before God changed? First, admit to God you are a sinner. Second, hate your sins Turn from them and ask God to forgive you. And finally, turn to Jesus in faith and love, putting your complete hope in Jesus's life, death, and resurrection, and follow him until the day you die. Wherever you are listening to this podcast, Jesus is ready to make this trade with you. And I pray that you would trust in Jesus and be saved. Thank you again for connecting with us, and I hope to see you soon at Eastwood Baptist Church.